Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Climate Briefing Podcast. My name is Anthony Froggart. I'm a Senior Research Fellow here at Chatham House. I'm delighted to be joined in this studio today on the sidelines of the annual Climate Change Conference by Ed Manfield, who is Vice President of the World Bank and in charge of operational policy and country service. Ed was just on an excellent panel at the conference on the reforming of the international financial architecture. And I want to explore this further with him and share his thoughts and actions of the World Bank with you all today. What was striking for me in the panel I've just heard was the extent of the the climate challenge ahead on two fronts. Firstly, the climate impacts that are currently taking place. This is not something that we're seeing years from now. 2023 is likely to be the hottest year on record. Month after month, we're seeing new temperatures being reached. Secondly is the speed of the challenge that people are recognising. We really do need to reduce emissions and prepare for climate change at an unprecedented rate. What that needs is money. And what we heard within the conference is various ranges of trillions of dollars that will be needed each year. Some of this, probably the majority, around 70%, will be coming from the private sector. But a key amount of the funding needs to come from the public sector, probably around 30%. Furthermore, what is absolutely clear is that the majority of the funding needs to go to certain geographies, in particular developing countries, where around 70% of finance is needed. And so that's why the World Bank is so crucial within this discussion. And so, Ed, maybe just as a starter for you, what I heard about today was the World Bank has embarked on an evolutionary process, which is about accelerating and deepening the amount of funding that is going to be made available for climate change. Could you talk us through what this might involve and the timescales for delivery that are now being proposed? Yeah, well, great to have this conversation here at Chatham House. Uh, It's clear that the planet and the people who live in it are facing a series of overlapping compounding crises and that these are accelerating and that we're, we're running out of time to address these issues. People living in developing countries are on the front line of the climate emergency, even though people in the, in the low and low income countries and uh, lower middle income countries have been generally uh, among the lower emitters, they, they're, they're on the receiving end. So, and of course, there's uh, all of the scarring that came from the COVID pandemic, uh, all of the learning losses, the setbacks in the elimination of uh, extreme poverty for the first time in in almost 30 years. So these are urgent and existential crises for people in the developing world. And the purpose of the evolution roadmap that we've been discussing with our governors in at our annual meetings in, in Marrakesh a few weeks ago is to build a consensus amongst our shareholders about how we can evolve as an institution to recognize these challenges are becoming more and more acute. The World Bank has, uh, is one of the largest providers of development finance to, to developing countries. We've also uh, become the largest provider of climate finance to developing countries. In our last fiscal year, we uh, provided $39 billion of climate finance, and that's uh, multiples of what we were doing just a, just a few years ago. But clearly, this is not enough, not even close. So the view of our shareholders and of all of all of us at the World Bank is that that we need to come together and do much, much more. So the process has involved uh, a lot of conversations amongst shareholders. We've identified a new mission for the World Bank, which keeps our traditional goal of ending poverty, but adds to that, that we need to end poverty on a livable planet. So we now have a formal mandate to tackle climate issues amongst others alongside poverty reduction. We've had a lot of discussions about how we can scale our financing for development. We need to do more. We've been looking at how we can 
leverage the $20 billion, which is the total capital that's been paid into the World Bank's uh, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, how we can leverage that more effectively to to get more uh, financing, including for climate. We've been having a lot of discussions about how we can get better at mobilizing private finance for development, not always just going the public sector route, but also how we can work with our client countries to make sure that they also mobilize domestic resources through through taxation because there's a significant public good element. We've been talking about how we can get faster development, delayed is development denied, and we need to recognize that the World Bank, along with other multilateral development banks, often takes too long to get uh, operations approved and, and, and dispersing and delivering results. We need to think more about impact in our operations. So we've been working to make sure that 100% of our operations are, are aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. We've been looking to see how we can strengthen our diagnostic tools, in, including by introducing country climate and development reports, which are country by country diagnostics, looking at the interface of climate and development. And we're going to be delivering those in in all of our client countries. But also there's a recognition that we can't do this on our own, that it's a partnership that we need to get better at working in partnership with other multilateral development banks, with the UN system, with the International Monetary Fund, and with, of course, with the private sector and with civil society and and, and parliamentarians and, and others. So all of this will test the sincerity of our collective ambition, and it will also require evolution on the part of our shareholders so we can do more through internal reforms, becoming a better bank, but we also need to become a, a bigger bank. And that will take a little bit of, of balance sheet optimization, but it's also going to take uh, stepped up global public investment. And, and I would also say f- fairer burden sharing between the global south and the global north. That's great. Thanks very much. It sounds like a really exciting process. You talked very clearly in, in terms of expanding the mandate so that it's not just about poverty alleviation, it's about on a livable planet. You also talked a lot about, or or you mentioned, the the significant increase in terms of climate finance over the last few years. I think 39 billion was the figure that you used. Are there arguments, or are people putting forward arguments, that this expanding of the the mandate in some way dilutes some of the attention uh, on eradicating poverty? So these have been very much um, the kinds of discussions that we've been having amongst our 189 shareholders that include everyone from Somalia to the United States. And as you would expect, there are different perspectives amongst uh, an increasingly divided world. When you talk to people from the global north about climate change, their focus is very often on mitigation and on reducing carbon. When you talk to people in the global south, it's it's much more about survival here and now and adaptation is a much more of a, a focus. And of course, I was recently in Bangladesh. You don't need to explain to anyone from Bangladesh that climate change is, a, is an existential threat to them as the, as the Himalayas melt. But I think there are grievances that the global south have at the idea that they should be asked to pay for the challenges of climate change not created by them from money that they previously had available to invest in poverty reduction and in building roads and, and schools and, and, and so on. So I think we need to be sensitive to the, the climate justice elements, uh, but we also need to be very clear that the road to ending poverty and the road to the Paris goals is ultimately the same road. And so that's what is at the heart of our new mission to end poverty on a livable planet, not to give up the fight for poverty reduction. That's something that we can never give up on, but to recognize that if we don't tackle climate change as well, then ultimately all of our efforts will come to naught. I totally hear what you're saying, 
that we need to go in parallel. Climate change will affect in terms of adaptation, changing the investment needs, also in terms of obviously the mitigation actions. So maybe you could, and you've talked through the sort of the high level reforms or, or the reforms that are being done within the institution. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the extent to which that's changing or assisting on the country level, both in terms of poverty alleviation, but also in terms of the climate crisis. So you're touching on very, very uh, important question here because, of course, there are, climate change is a global challenge and we need global goals and, and global action. But the way in which you tackle climate change varies enormously if you're talking about the Maldives or India, if you're talking about the Sahel or South Africa, the challenges are different, the solutions are different. And the world is, as you know, is complicated. Uh, so, so we need to avoid cookie cutter solutions. We need to recognize that we need to work country by country to diagnose what are the climate challenges and opportunities that the country in question is, is, is facing and to build tailor-made solutions and to help them to prioritize the most urgent and impactful interventions from a policy point of view and from an investment point of view to help uh, achieve the the goals of the, the Paris Agreement, both from a, a mitigation point of view and, a, a, and an adaptation resilience point of view. And one of the things that we're very proud of in the World Bank is the new country climate and development reports that we've been doing country by country. We've done this now in 25 countries. We have another 20, which will be published ahead of the COP. And we are going to be continuing until we've completed these in all of our borrower countries. And these are really powerful tools, I think, not just to find appropriate solutions, but also to build national ownership. People sometimes forget that we are a development institution, but we're also a bank and we, we need to have willing borrowers. We can't sign loan agreements for sovereign states. So we need to, to win hearts and minds. We need to help countries also to recognize the huge development opportunities that can be involved in tackling climate change. For adaptation, it's obvious that, that if you don't build in resilience, your investments in development will not be sustainable. But also from a, a mitigation point of view, even sometimes even the, the very poorest countries, which are not large emitters of carbon, have big economic opportunities from renewable energy or from hydro power. We're working on a, a hydro project in Nepal, the Upper Arun hydro power project, uh, along with some others in very similarly poor countries with low carbon footprints. And they could perfectly well say, well, why should we invest in climate mitigation? But the answer is because this gives them the opportunity to become a, a battery for South Asia and to make money by selling clean energy to a very power-starved uh, region. That There are many, many other examples. Distributed renewable electricity is uh, something that contributes to a low carbon pathway for countries, but it can also be a really powerful way of getting power to poor people in remote parts of Africa so that they can put the lights on in their schools and homes and run their businesses and, and grow their economies and ultimately Im improve their lives. So I think when you work country by country and you, you sit with countries and really engage with their challenges, that people often see that uh, tackling development and climate are two sides of the same coin. It's fascinating you mentioned Nepal. We had the energy minister of Nepal in Chatham House just a couple of weeks ago. Had very similar language in terms of the opportunities about becoming the, the battery for the region and similar, I guess, we see in Europe yeah. in terms of Switzerland. So, yeah, many opportunities. Just touch more of a bit, bit about the country reports. Is You said you've done 20, another 20 to be released. Is there some common learnings that you take out of that that then can help be applied to other countries? Yes, we did a, uh, a, a synthesis report um, 
ahead of the Sham uh, COP, which pulled together learning from the initial country climate and development reports. We have another one that will come out ahead of uh, COP28. And so, yes, absolutely, we're trying to to synthesize some of the some of the learning. And, and I think this is an interesting conversation that on the one hand, we, we need to recognize that development is local and that we need to tailor to, to local circumstances. On the other hand, I think one of the things that's an important part of the conversation around World Bank evolution and MDB evolution more generally is, is about the need to find ways to build replicable and scalable approaches. So the world is full of uh, solutions and there's uh, no shortage of, of, of good ideas, but how do we get beyond being a eternal cycle of, of pilots and get to the idea that we uh, start to double down and, and replicate and scale things that, that we know have an impact? And how do we build learning into what we do that can be shared across countries? So an exciting part of our evolution work is, is around the development of six global challenge programs, as we're calling them. And the idea here is that we'll work in a series of priority areas, uh, renewable energy and energy transition, water access and, and adaptation, uh, food and nutrition security, and uh, other areas to to see how we can bring uh, replicable and scalable approaches that allow us to go faster, to approval faster, to disbursement and results, and also building in much more systematic outcome orientation and impact evaluation so that we can leverage learning to get to scale and get to results much faster. And that can also be very helpful in helping to bring in the private sector. The One of the things that we constantly here when we talk to private investors is that they don't want to engage on retail operations. They they want to be able to invest in portfolios of a, of a more standardized class of project uh, in a, a segment of the world that they can put into a balanced portfolio and where they can manage risks across different countries. So this is something that we're, we're working on and we're, we're learning as we go. But I, I'm very excited about the potential for these global challenge programs. That's great. Thank you. In the answer, you talked about the sort of the next synthesis report coming out before COP28. Here we are, beginning of November, less than a month away till COP28. And what we've seen from the, the presidency of COP is the call for ambitious progress on IFI reform for climate action. Maybe you could just talk a bit about what your hopes, I guess, expectations are for COP28. We've heard in this conference today many concerns in terms of the shortness of time, some of the, the, the changing political priorities that exist globally. Well, I think every COP is a, is an important moment. So we always look to the COP to be a, an opportunity to catalyze the next level of, of, of ambition. And it's clear that if you add up the NDCs of, of the world, they don't add up to anything like uh, keeping 1.5 degrees alive. So we need to continue to, to, to push ambition at the national level and also taking sectoral and thematic uh, uh, approaches. I think that it's very important that we don't allow the COP process just to become a, a pledging process where nobody ever follows up to see that there is delivery. And uh, the World Bank, I think, has uh, been generally pretty good at outperforming the commitments that it makes. We committed as part of our Climate Change Action Plan to uh, having 35% of our financing for climate action, and we are currently running at about 40, 41%. So we we take our commitments seriously but I think it's important to have more transparency about how countries and other partners are are performing on the the, the commitments that they uh, that they make. And then I think the other thing I would say is that it's uh, fashionable in discussions around climate finance to say that 
official development assistance and public money will never be enough. And of course, that's absolutely true. The investments required are in the billions of dollars, uh, trillions of dollars each year, regardless of whoever's uh, estimates that you look at. But but I think it's also important to to recognize that there's a large public good element uh, and a large global public good element to climate action. So yes, we need to leverage every dollar of official development assistance. Yes, we need to mobilize private finance and public finance, uh, domestic public finance in in all sorts of ways. We need to have more speed and we have need to have more impact. But I, I think it's important that we also recognize that we do need stepped up uh, global public investment and we need fairer burden sharing between the uh, the global south and the global north. And, and so that will mean difficult conversations around stepping up the real transfer of resources from developed countries that are the largest emitters historically and, and in many cases still today uh, to the poorest countries in the global south. One last thing I would say is that it's very important also that we don't allow the low-income countries and Africa in particular to be left out of the conversation around climate finance. And about a year from this COP, we will be concluding the 21st replenishment of the International Development Association, IDA, our fund for the, the poorest countries, which provides grant and zero or low interest financing to the, the poorest countries of the world. And this is a very important moment for us to, to make sure that we uh, make the case that uh, the countries on the front line of the climate emergency need more ODA and that that will will require uh, stepped up contributions in in cash from the shareholders of the World Bank Group. Is part of that the loss and damage fund, which obviously at the moment where we are, there's still significant progress is needed to this establishment of the fund. Again, it was floated in the conference uh, just earlier that maybe the World Bank potentially could be a manager of this fund. Where do you see that fit within the potential remit of the bank going forward? Well, I think IDA is certainly part of the conversation in terms of loss and damage in a broader sense. And I think that recognizing loss and damage and making sure that that's adequately financed is is an important part of rebuilding trust between the global north and the the global south. As to where the loss and damage fund that uh, came out of the last COP is is, is housed, that's a conversation that is taking place amongst uh, UNFCCC signatories. The, the World Bank isn't a party to the UNFCCC. We, of course, strongly support its work, and we're engaged in the in the conversation around around that and and trying to be helpful. But I, I think we look to um, UNFCCC members to decide where the loss and damage fund uh, is housed. I know that there are conversations about what would be the right voice in the in a loss and damage fund, and uh, typically the financial intermediary funds that the the World Bank Group houses have their own governance structure that's put in place uh, by by the contributors. I know there's conversations about the balance between grant financing and more leveraged financing. And of course, um, the World Bank and particularly IDA provide both grant financing and and more leveraged financing. But the, these are ultimately conversations from a between the, the UNFCCC members, but, but I would say that we are strong advocates for investment in adaptation. And one of the things that the, the World Bank is particularly proud of is that we're one of the very few international organizations that's uh, close to achieving the target set by the UN Secretary General that uh, 50% of climate finance should be for adaptation. We're averaging uh, around 46% uh, of our climate finance for, for adaptation. 
so I think we're, we're leaders in, in terms of adaptation financing. One more point on, on the adaptation, because again, it was one of the, the, the topics that came up in the, the panel. Very encouraging the, the extent to which the World Bank has increased its, its adaptation financing. What are the barriers that you think you've over, or that you have overcome in order to increase that percentage? Why, in some ways, have you been more successful than some of the other financial institutions? Well, I think the first thing is, is recognizing its importance. And we hear very loudly and clearly from our shareholders from the, the global south how much they uh, feel that uh, investing in adaptation to climate change is a, is a priority. Uh, I think as a, as a development institution, we see all the, all the time that there are um, uh, investments that are made in development that are then uh, not sustained because of climate impacts. And so embedding climate resilience into everything we do is is something that we've chosen to to prioritize uh, we made a commitment as part of our climate change action plan a number of years ago to ensure that 100% of our operations are aligned with the goals of the paris agreement and we pay equal attention in that assessment to ensuring um low carbon development pathways and also ensuring climate resilience uh, is is embedded into all of our investments. So we're screening our operations very systematically in that regard. And then our country climate and development reports are also treating adaptation with the, the importance it deserves. And of course, when you look at climate issues in, in countries like the Maldives or in regions like the Sahel, you recognize that, that adaptation has to be the, the majority of the conversation for those, those countries because it's, it's existential for them. Well, on that downbeat note, but I think absolutely important to recognize it Thank you so much indeed, Ed. I really appreciate this conversation. It's been a pleasure.